Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. Artificial intelligence is making strides in the world of neuroscience, as researchers at Weill Cornell Medicine and Cornell Tech have found an innovative way to map visual functions in the brain. Indeed, Charlotte. They have used AI-selected natural images and AI-generated synthetic images to probe the visual processing areas of the brain. This approach aims to eliminate potential biases that may arise when using a limited set of researcher-selected images. In their experiment, volunteers were shown images selected or generated based on an AI model of the human visual system. These images were designed to maximally activate several visual processing areas. And guess what? The Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or fMRI, showed that these images did indeed activate the target areas significantly better than control images. That's fascinating, Charlotte. It's like they're tuning the AI model to the individual volunteers. So the images generated to be maximally activating for a particular individual worked better than images based on a general model. It's a personalized approach to understanding vision. Exactly, Diego. Dr. Amy Kusieski, a professor of mathematics in radiology and of mathematics in neuroscience at the File Family Brain and Mind Research Institute at Weill Cornell Medicine, believes this is a promising new approach to study the neuroscience of vision. This is a collaboration with Dr. Mert Sabunchu's laboratory, isn't it? He's a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Cornell Engineering and Cornell Tech. The study's first author was Dr. Zijin Gu, a doctoral student co-mentored by Dr. Sabunku and Dr. Kuchieski at the time of the study. Absolutely, Diego. They've been using an existing data set of tens of thousands of natural images, along with corresponding fMRI responses from human subjects, to train an artificial neural network to model the human brain's visual processing system. The goal is to map and model the visual system in a systematic, unbiased way using images that a person wouldn't normally encounter. The results are quite promising, aren't they? For both the natural and synthetic images, the predicted maximal activator images did activate the targeted brain regions significantly more than a set of average activators. This validates the team's ANN-based model and suggests that synthetic images could be effective probes for testing and improving such models. Yes, Diego, and they didn't stop there. In a follow-up experiment, they used the image and fMRI response data to create separate ANN-based visual system models for each of the volunteers. They then used these individualized models to select or generate predicted maximal activator images for each subject. The fMRI responses to these images showed greater activation of the targeted visual region. That's intriguing. It seems this approach could be extended to other senses like hearing, and Dr. Kutsayevsky also hopes to study the therapeutic potential of this approach. Imagine being able to alter the connectivity between two parts of the brain using specifically designed stimuli. This could potentially weaken a connection that causes excess anxiety, for instance. Exactly, Diego. It's an exciting time for neuroscience, and we can't wait to see how this research unfolds in the future. From mapping the human brain with artificial intelligence, let's pivot now to another field where advanced technology is making a significant impact. Climate science is a field that has been grappling with complex questions, and one of the most pressing is how we measure global warming. Let's delve into this crucial topic. Charlotte, I'd like to talk about a topic that's been on the minds of many climate scientists lately. 
It's about how we measure global warming. Interesting point, Diego. I mean, we hear that we're more than one grigas warmer than pre-industrial times due to human activities, and the IPCC projects a 50% chance that will exceed 1.5 within the next decade, despite ambitious emissions cuts. Exactly, Charlotte. And that 1.5 Celsius target is crucial, as it's a key part of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. But here's the catch. The agreement doesn't explicitly define what constitutes a temperature increase. Without a clear metric, how can we agree on when we've hit the 1.5 degrees Celsius mark? It's a bit of a... A bit of a conundrum, isn't it? And it's not as if global temperatures increase smoothly. There are short-term fluctuations due to natural climate variability. So a temporary very spike above 1.5 degrees Celsius wouldn't necessarily mean we've breached the threshold, would it? Exactly, Charlotte. And that's why we need a method to filter out these natural climate cycles. The IPCC has defined global warming levels in terms of projected 20-year averages. But this means we'd only confirm 1.5 the rates of warming once we've seen that rise, on average, over a 20-year period, which could lead to delays in recognizing and reacting to the crossing point. That's quite alarming, Diego. So we could potentially cross the threshold and not even realize it until a decade later. It seems like there's a real need for a more immediate indicator of the current level of long-term warming. Absolutely. And there are several methods already in use. But the challenge is that each one can give a slightly different estimate of current warming, depending on the data, algorithms, and assumptions used. It's a bit like trying to hit a moving target. And that could potentially lead to confusion and disagreement, couldn't it? especially when it comes to deciding when we've officially crossed the 1.5 degree Celsius mark. So what's the solution here, Diego? Well, Charlotte, researchers are proposing a new indicator, the 20-year average temperature rise centered around the current year. This is estimated by blending observations from the past 10 years with climate model projections for the next 10 years. This current global warming level or CGWL indicator, meets the criteria for consistency with established IPCC definitions and provides an instantaneous indicator of current warming. That sounds like a promising approach, Diego. So what needs to happen next for this to be implemented? Well, first off, the international community needs to recognize the need for a single agreed metric for crossing the 1.5 degree Celsius threshold. Discussions on the nature of this indicator should start immediately. The IPCC should examine indicators like the CGWL in depth and develop a robust and transparent process for calculating and communicating it. So essentially, we need to get everyone on the same page and start using this new indicator as soon as possible. Because the longer we wait, the closer we get to potentially crossing that threshold without even realizing it. Exactly, Charlotte. It's a race against time, and we need to be as prepared as possible to tackle this climate crisis head-on. From the pressing concerns of our own planet, let's now venture beyond our earthly bounds and into the mesmerizing expanse of the cosmos. Just a short galactic hop away at a mere 100 light-years, astronomers have stumbled upon an intriguing discovery. A peculiar star system has captured their attention, and its unique characteristics are set to shed new light on the mysteries of the universe. So, buckle up, as we embark on this interstellar journey to explore what makes this star system so special. Charlotte, let's venture out of this world for a bit and explore a fascinating discovery in the realm of astronomy. Just a cosmic stone's throw away at a mere 100 light years, 
astronomers have discovered a star system that's quite peculiar. Oh, I love a good space story. What's so peculiar about this star system, Diego? Well, it's got six planets incredibly close to their host star, closer than any planet in our solar system is to the sun. What's more intriguing is that this system, known as HD 110067, seems to have remained largely unchanged since its formation over a billion years ago. That's fascinating. It's like a cosmic time capsule. But what do we know about these planets? Are they similar to ours? Unfortunately, they're not in the habitable zone. They're too close to the star, which is fairly bright and orange. The planets also orbit very quickly, with their years ranging from 9 to 55 days. They were initially detected in 2020 by NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TS. Hold on, Diego. You mentioned that these planets are incredibly close to their star. How close are we talking about? Well, Charlotte, all their orbits could fit within the distance between Mercury and our Sun. That's how close they are. Now, these planets are sub-Neptunes, about two to three times as big as Earth and covered by puffy atmospheres. The team only had a month to confirm this discovery using ground-based telescopes. Wow, that's a tight deadline, but they managed to confirm it, right? They did, indeed. And with new data from TESS, plus observations by the European Space Agency's characterizing exoplanet satellite, they confirmed a third exoplanet in the system. And the other three? The remaining three were deduced from dips in starlight in the TESS data, which is known to be caused by orbiting planets. Interestingly, all three confirmed planets exist nearly perfectly in what scientists call resonance. That's where one planet makes a certain number of orbits for every orbit of the next planet. Like a cosmic dance, isn't it? But why is this significant, Diego? It's significant because it can help us understand planetary system formation and evolution processes. Kegley Rockcliffe, a graduate student studying exoplanet atmospheres at Dartmouth College, likened it to studying a plant to understand the soil it grew from. So, studying this system could tell us more about our own solar system. That's amazing. I can't wait to see what further research reveals. Absolutely, Charlotte. The team plans to measure the masses of the planets, which would offer insight into the system's chemical makeup. They might even be able to reverse engineer the evolution of these planets to better understand their formation mechanisms. It's indeed a thrilling time for astronomers and space enthusiasts alike. From the vastness of space, let's turn our attention back down to Earth and delve into a different kind of exploration, the field of medical research. Specifically, we're going to look at some recent developments in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, a chronic inflammatory disorder that can affect more than just your joints. It seems there's some interesting news about the use of biologics in treatment strategies. Let's dive into this. Charlotte, I've been reading up on a recent study about biologics used in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. It seems there's no clear criteria for selecting which biologic to use for individual patients. Interesting. And biologics are quite crucial in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, aren't they? Yes, they are. The study I'm referring to looked into the retention rates of biologics. They found out that a drug called etanercept, or ETN, was the most frequently used, followed by adalimumab and tocilizumab. So the retention rates would indicate um, how long patients stay on these drugs before switching to another treatment. Exactly. And when they compared the retention rates in biologic-naive patients, they found the rates were highest for tocilizumab, followed by abatacept, 
and then etanercept. The main reasons for dropout were primary ineffectiveness, secondary ineffectiveness, and infection. So it seems that a drug's effectiveness is a major factor in its retention rate. But I'm curious, Diego, how do these retention rates affect the treatment strategy for rheumatoid arthritis? Well, the study suggests that these retention rates could help in selecting biologics for treatment. For instance, non-TNF inhibitors, which include drugs like tocilizumab and abatacept, had higher retention rates. This could mean that these drugs might be more effective or better tolerated by patients. That's a valuable insight. Uh, but I assume the choice of biologic would still depend on the individual characteristics of the patient and the clinician's decision, right? Absolutely, Charlotte. The choice of biologic is typically a decision made by the clinician, taking into account the patient's condition, medical history, and other factors. But studies like this can provide valuable data to inform those decisions. It's fascinating how much goes into these treatment decisions, and it's encouraging to see research like this aiming to improve patient outcomes. But Diego, I'm wondering, what does this mean for future research in this area? Good question, Charlotte. The study suggests that further studies are needed, especially as the options for treatment are expanding with the release of new drugs. More research could help refine these treatment strategies and hopefully improve outcomes for patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So, more research to come. It's clear that the scientific community is hard at work trying to find the best ways to manage rheumatoid arthritis. It will be interesting to see what future studies reveal. Absolutely, Charlotte. The more we understand about these biologics and how they work, the better we can tailor treatments to individual patients. It's a complex field, but one that holds a lot of promise for improving patient care.